Everyone. Welcome to a very belated daily science report. This one should be pretty interesting. Um, turns out AI can now read your thoughts. So this article just came out in Vice. Of course, uh, it's been able to do that more or less for a while. But the title of this is that scientists use GPT AI to passively read people's thoughts in a breakthrough. So an AI model similar to ChatGPT was combined with fMRI readings to non-invasively decode continuous language from subjects in a new study. And I'll drop this link to this article if I can uh, share this link. Just so we have. There you go. And I'll go ahead and read it for you guys here. Um, it says scientists have invented a language decoder that can translate a person's thoughts into text using artificial intelligence transformer similar to ChatGPT. The breakthrough marks the first time that continuous language has been non-invasively reconstructed from human brain activities, which are a gist of stories, the gist of stories that human subjects watched or listened to or even simply imagined using fMRI brain patterns, an achievement that essentially allows it to read people's minds with unprecedented efficiency. While this technology is still in its early stages, scientists hope it might one day help people with uh, neurological conditions that affect speech to communicate with the outside world. However, the team that made the decoder also warned that brain reading platforms could eventually have nefarious applications, including as means of surveillance for governments and employers. Though the researchers emphasized that their decoder requires the cooperation of human subjects to work, they argued that brain-computer interfaces would respect mental privacy, according to a stubbly public. I'm laughing at this. <laughs> you realize that, why I'm laughing at this, I hope. All right, so currently language decoding is done using implanted devices that require neurosurgery, and our study is the first to decode continuous language, meaning more than full words or sentences from non brain recordings. Uh, meaning more than full words or sentences, meaning more than full words or sentences. Continuous language. Okay, that's interesting. Um, from non-invasive brain recordings, which we collect from functional MRI. So Jerry Tang, a graduate student in computer science at University of Texas at Austin, who led the study in a press briefing held last Thursday, said the goal of language decoding is to take recordings of a user's brain activity and predict the words that the user was hearing or saying or imagining. He noted, eventually, we hope that this technology can help people who have lost the ability to speak due to injuries like strokes or diseases like ALS. Tang and his colleagues were able to produce their decoder with the help of three human participants who each spent 16 hours in an fMRI machine listening to stories. The researchers trained an AI model referred to as GPT-1 in the study on Reddit comments and autobiographical, <laughs> Reddit comments and autobiographical stories in order to link the semantic features of the recorded stories with the neural activity captured in fMRI data. This way, they would learn which words and phrases were associated with certain brain patterns. Once that phase of the experiment was complete, the participants had their brain scanned with an fMRI while they were while they listened to new stories that were not part of the training data set. The decoder was able to translate the audio narratives into text as the participants heard them. Uh, though these interpretations often use different semantic constructions from 
the original recordings, for instance, a recording of a speaker saying the sentence, I don't have my driver's license yet, was decoded from the listener's thoughts via the fMRI readers to she has not even started to learn to drive yet. These rough translations emerge from a key difference between the new decoder and existing techniques that use invasive implanted electrodes in the brain. The electrode-based platforms typically predict text from motor activities such as the movements of a person's mouth as they try to speak, whereas Tang's team focused on the flow of blood through the brain, which is what is captured in the fMRI. So our system works at a very different level. Uh, an assistant professor of neuroscience and computer science at UT Austin, senior author of the study, said in the briefing, instead of looking at this low-level mo motor thing, our system really looks at the le level of ideas of semantics and of meaning. That's what it's getting at. So the reason why I think that what we get out is not the exact words that somebody heard or spoke is the gist. He continued, it's the same idea, but expressed in different words. The novel approach allowed the team to push the limits of mind reading technologies by seeing if the doctor could translate the thoughts of participants as they watch silent movies or just imagine stories in their heads. In both cases, the doctor was able to decipher what the participants were seeing in the case of the movies and what subjects were thinking as they played out brief stories in their imaginations. Oh my God, the decoder produced more accurate results during the test with audio recordings compared to the imagined speech, but it was still able to glean some basic details of unspoken thoughts from the brain activity. For instance, when a subject, excuse me, envisioned the shyish, ah, when, when, the, when a subject envisioned the sentence, here's the sentence, went on a dirt road through a field of wheat and over a stream and by some log buildings. The decoder produced text that said he had to walk across a bridge to the other side and a very large building in the distance. Okay, that's wild. The participants in the study ran through all these tests while inside an fMRI machine, which is a clunky and, and mobile piece of laboratory equipment. For this reason, the decoder is not yet ready as a practical treatment for patients with speech conditions. Uh, though Tang and his colleagues hope that future iterations of the device could be adapted to more convenient platforms like near-infrared spectroscopy sensors that can be worn on a patient's head. You hear that, guys? Near-infrared spectroscopy sensors. So it's reading the, the heat, the pattern off of sensors uh, pointed at someone's head. Uh, while the researchers hinted at the promise of this technology as a new means of communication, they also cautioned that decoders raise ethical concerns about mental privacy. Our privacy analysis suggests that subject cooperation is currently required through uh, required both to train and to apply the decoder. Tang's team said in the study, however, future developments might enable decoders to bypass these requirements. Moreover, even if decoder predictions are inaccurate without subject cooperation, they would be intentionally misinterpreted for malicious purposes. For these and other unforeseen reasons, it's critical to raise awareness of the risk of brain decoding technology and enact policies to protect each person's mental privacy, the researchers concluded. Woo, there's the truth at the end there. That's it. So that was a vindicating article for me because I've been pushing a concept called uh, infrared uh, debates where we have these near infrared scanners aimed at people's heads. What's up, Peter? You missed a really good article, but I'm just now talking about it. So uh, they're using these fMRI machines to read people's thoughts and there's potential for this to even be used in platforms like a, a infrared heat camera uh, pointed at someone's face and you can like potentially using chat gpt ai 
uh, or something like ChatGPT, you could decode what someone is thinking just by pointing an infrared camera at their face <laughs> or an infrared scanner. And uh, I think that's pretty cool. Um, and I, I, I would encourage our leadership to subject themselves to that kind of technology. And so this, this article absolutely vindicated my idea against all my haters who said it was a stupid idea, it doesn't work, you don't know what you're talking about. Well, turns out it might actually be a better idea than I even imagined, beyond, far and beyond distinguishing between someone lying and telling the truth. It, we may actually be able to interpret uh, specific emotions, uh, potentially words, all kinds of uh, incredible things, uh, the future technologies that are right around the corner, guys. So there's no more privacy. And you guys might as well just get comfortable with it because <laughs> there's no running from this. There's no escaping it. Um, I think I would just encourage everyone to start behaving properly <laughs> and, and be good examples of uh, parents for this AI child we're all collectively raising. So I think the theme of this uh, daily science report is going to be AI. And so I'm going to get into some more AI articles and see what I can find as far as what's new. Maybe I'll check the headlines. And if there's an interesting headline, we'll, we'll go into that. So yeah, rapid ice is melting in Greenland. Guys, Greenland is melting crazy. of conscious activity in the brain. Very interesting. If you guys want to hear about that one, let me know. Previously unknown intercellular electricity may power biology. Oh, this sounds like chi. Okay, we're going to read this one. This is from April 28th, 2023. Duke University. Previously unknown intercellular electricity may power biology. Newly discovered electrical activity within cells could change the way researchers think about biological chemistry. Uh, let's see. Interesting. Uh, the human body relies heavily on electrical charges. Lightning-like pulses of energy fly through the brain and nerves, and most biological processes depend on electrical ions traveling across the membranes of each cell in our body. Speaking of which, I have this amazing electrolyte concentrate I'm going to drink right now. <laughs> My water, I'm going to test it, see how this is. And uh, see if it helps my reading skills a little bit. Uh, these electrical signals are possible in part because of an imbalance in electrical charges that exist on either side of a cellular membrane. Until recently, researchers believed the membrane was an essential component to creating this imbalance. But that thought was turned on its head when researchers at Stanford University discovered that similar imbalanced electrical charges can exist between micro droplets of water and air. Ooh, ooh, wow. Oh, hell, hell of electrolytes in that. Man, I need a little more water. Okay. Ah. Pardon me. Uh, now researchers at Duke University have discovered that these types of electric fields also exist within and around another type of cellular structure called biological con condensates, like oil droplets floating in water. These structures exist because of differences in density. They form compartments inside the cell without needing the physical boundary of a membrane. Inspired by previous research demonstrating that micro droplets of water interacting with air or solid surfaces create tiny electrical imbalances. The researchers decided to see if the same was true for small biological condensates. They also wanted to see if these imbalances sparked reactive oxygen, oxygen redox reactions like these other systems. 
appearing on April 28th journal in Kim, their foundational discovery could change the way researchers think about biological chemistry. It could also provide a clue as to how the first life on Earth harness the energy to arise in a prebiotic environment without the enzymes to catalyze reactions. Where would the energy come from? Asked Yifan Dai, the Duke postdoctoral researcher. The discovery provides a plausible explanation of where the reaction energy could have come from, just the potential energy that is imparted on a point charge placed in an electric field, placed in an electric field. <clears throat> When electric charges jump between one material and another, they can produce molecular fragments that can pair up and form hydroxyl radicals, which have the chemical formula OH, oxygen and hydrogen. Those can then pair again to form hydroxygen per, uh, hydrogen peroxide, H2O2, in tiny but detectable amounts. Oh, my God. This, like, resonates with this interesting, like, hydrogen peroxide health therapy stuff I've been reading about. Anyway, going on. Interfaces have seldom been studied in biological regimes other than cellular membrane, which is one of the most essential part of biology, said Dai. So we were wondering what might be happening at the interface of biological condensates. That is, if it is an asymmetric system, too. So cells can build the biological condensates uh, to either separate or trap together certain proteins and molecules, either hindering or promoting their activity. Researchers are just beginning to understand how condensates work and what they could be used for. Because the Chi Kotoi Laboratory specializes in, oh, the Chi Kotoi Laboratory specializes in creating synthetic versions of naturally occurring biological condensates. The researchers were easily able to create a test bed for their theory. After combining the right formula of building blocks to create minuscule condensates with help from postdoctoral scholar Marco Messina and Christopher J. Crane's group at the University of California, Berkeley, their hunch was right. When the environmental conditions were right, a solid glow started from the edges of the condensates, confirming that a previously unknown phenomenon was at work. Dai next talked with Richard Zayer, a... Marguerite Blake Wilbur, professor of chemistry at Stanford, who, whose group established the electric behavior of water droplets. Zare was excited to hear about the new behavior in biological systems and started to work with the group on the underlying mechanism. Inspired by previous work on water droplets, my graduate student Christian Chamberlain and I thought that the same physical principles might apply and promote redox chemistry, such as the formation of hydrogen peroxide molecules. Zaire said, these findings suggest why condensates are so important in the functioning of cells. Most previous work on biomolecular condensates is focused on their innards. Uh, Yifan's discovery that biomolecular condensates appear to be universally redox active suggests that condensates did not simply evolve to carry out specific biological functions as commonly understood, but they were also endowed with a critical chemical function that is essential to cells. While the biological implications of this <clears throat> ongoing reaction with our cells is not known, Dai points to a prebiotic example of how powerful its effects might be. The powerhouses of our cells called mitochondria create energy for all of our life's functions through the same basic chemical processes. But before mitochondria or even the simplest of cells existed, something had to provide energy for the very first of life's functions to begin working. 
Researchers have proposed that the energy was provided by thermal vents in the oceans or hot springs. Others have suggested the same redox reaction that occurs in water microdroplets was created by the spray of ocean waves. But why not condensates instead? Magic can happen when substances get tiny and the interfacial volume becomes enormous compared to its volume. I'm sorry, the interfacial volume becomes enormous compared to its volume, Dye said. I think the implications are important to many different fields. So that is absolutely mind-blowing on multiple levels. It's way too cool. Um, here's a link to this article, and this article links to the direct scholarly article you guys as well. And boom, bada bing, bam. Science Daily. I can read thoughts, connect it to Brady and Greg, and I'll just be locked in two loops of endless zeros. Oh, that's a burn. That's a good one, uh huh. Her to her. Um, oh, he's gone already. Looks like he didn't have anything intelligent to contribute. Imagine my surprise. Uh, okay, so. What do you say? We just keep reading, do one more article. That was uh, incredible. So what kind of what was vindicating about that article for me was that I've been reading about hydrogen peroxide therapy and how topical hydrogen peroxide, like literally just putting hydrogen peroxide on your skin could be good for you. And uh, honestly, I've been meaning to run the experiment and I just haven't done it yet. So I'm going to take it more seriously. I'm going to see how I feel and I'm going to do that more often and I'll report back. But um Let's see. Uh, let's see what's new in science. What else is new in science? That was way cool. And that sounds like it could be. Um, it's just so many, it unlocks so many interesting things to talk about. Like that could be the underlying mechanism for chi or prana, this, this energy, this life force that we talk about that uh, is potentially the energy that uh, was uh, utilized or harnessed to create life itself at the very beginning of life on earth, uh, totally spontaneously through the structure of our amazing universe. And I think that's absolutely beautiful. I think that's way too cool. So I'm going to take a lot of things a little more. I'm going to look a little more seriously at a couple more things now. And I just love this kind of stuff. So astronomers detect nearby black hole devouring a star Human pangenome reference will enable more complete and equitable understanding of genomic diversity. I think I just did one on that recently. Um, clearest snapshot of human genomic diversity. Yeah, we, we talked about that one in the last episode. Nose-shaped gene inherited from Neanderthals. Oh, Lord, I'm probably part Neanderthal. Novel ultrasound uses micro bubbles to open blood-brain barrier to treat glioblastoma in humans. Wow. That's pretty cool. So ultrasound microbubbles, open blood brain barrier to treat glioblastoma. That's pretty cool. New study puts a definitive age on Saturn's rings. They're really young. Astronomers reveal the largest cosmic explosion ever seen. Researchers find new approach to explore earliest universe dynamics with gravitational waves. Ooh, I'm into that one. It might be a little heady. I don't know if y'all want to get into that or not. Uh, supermassive black holes brought to life by galaxies on collision course. Culprit behind destruction of New York's first dinosaur museum revealed. 
<laughs> Let me guess. It was a Christian. <laughs> okay. I got to read this one. This is just, we'll wrap it up with this one. Uh, if you guys are interested, interested in some astrophysics, let me know. And we'll get into that later about gravitational waves. I'm super into that. Uh, culprit behind, but this is just, I gotta, I gotta read this culprit behind destruction of New York's first dinosaur museum has been revealed May 11th, 2023 university of Bristol new paper rewrites the history of the darkest, most bizarre event in the history of paleontology <laughs> in New York, May of 1871, the paramilitary, I'm sorry, the partially built life-size models of dinosaurs and other prehistoric creatures uh, destined for a prestigious new museum in Central Park were totally destroyed in a violent act of malicious vandalism by a gang of thugs with sledgehammers. The shattered pieces were carted away and buried somewhere in the park, never to be seen again. This is tragic. Until now, the heinous acts have been attributed to former American politician William Boss Tweed. But now a new paper from Miss Victoria Coles uh, of Bristol's Department of History of Art and Professor Michael Boston, Bristol School of Earth Sciences, sheds new light on the incident and contrary to previous accounts, identifies who was really behind the order and what drove them to such wanton destruction. An odd man known as Henry Hilton, the treasurer and VP of Central Park. It is also it is all to do with the struggle for control of New York City in the years following the American Civil War, 1861 through 1865, said Mrs. Coles. The city was at the center of a power struggle, a battle for control of the city's finances and lucrative building and development contracts. As the city grew, iconic Central Park was taking shape more than just a green space. It was to have other attractions, including Paleozoic Museum, British sculptor Benjamin Waterhouse Hawkins, who had created the Crystal Palace dinosaurs. The life-size models of prehistoric creatures in London had traveled to America and was commissioned to build American versions of the models for the Paleozoic Museum. But the notorious William Boss Tweed had taken command of the city and in sweeping changes to the city's governance, put his own henchmen in charge of city departments, including Central Park. They canceled the partially complete project in the late 1870s. And there the matter would have lain. But in May 1871, someone ordered the gang of workmen to destroy all of its partially finished components. Professor, Professor Benton explains previous accounts of the incident had always reported that this was done under the personal instruction of Bostweed himself for various motives ranging from the display would be blasphemous to vengeance for perceived criticism of him in a New York Times report of the project's cancellation. Reading these reports, something didn't look right, Miss Cole said. At the time, Tweed was fighting for his political life, already accused of corruption and financial wrongdoing. So why was he so involved in a museum project? So he went back to the original sources and found it wasn't Tweed, and the motive wasn't blasphemy or hurt vanity. The situation was complicated by two other projects in development at the same time in Central Park, the American Museum of Natural History and the Central Park Zoo. But as Professor Benson explained, drawing on the detailed annual reports and minutes of... Uh, Annual reports and minutes of Central Park, along with reports in the New York Times, we can show that the real villain was one strange character by the name of Henry Hilton. Mrs. Coles adds, because all the primary sources are now available online, we could study them in detail and we could show that the destruction was ordered in a meeting by the, the real culprit, Henry Hilton, the treasurer and VP of Central Park. And it was carried out the day after this meeting. <clears throat> Hilton was already notorious for other eccentric decisions. When he noticed a bronze statue in the park, he ordered it painted white and 
when a whale skeleton was donated to the American Museum of Natural History, he had that painted white as well. Later in life, other ill-judged decisions included cheating a widow out of her inheritance, squandering a huge fortune, and trashing businesses and livelihoods along the way. Professor Benton concluded this might seem like a logical act of thuggery, but correcting the record is hugely... Oh, I'm sorry. This might seem like a local act of thuggery. Yeah, I was what, logical? Yeah. This might seem like a local act of thuggery, but correcting the record is hugely important in our understanding of the history of paleontology. We show it wasn't blasphemy or an act of petty visions by William Tweed, but the act of a very strange individual who made equally bizarre decisions about how artifacts should be treated painting statues or whale skeletons white and destroying the museum models. He can be seen as the villain of the piece, but as character, Hilton remains an enigmatic mystery. So there you go. What a fucking weirdo. <laughs> I'm going to check back with you guys, see if y'all want to do one more. If you guys have any specific interests? Nope. But uh, yeah, that's it for the day. Um, God, I'm, we... I hope we're making progress as humans, guys. Uh, let me just check back one more time and make sure I'm not leaving any super cool science on the table. Giants of the Jurassic Seas were twice the size of a killer whale. That's pretty cool. Earth's first animals had particular taste in real estate. Interesting. Global research reveals countries where record-breaking heat waves are likely to cause the most harm. Ooh, countries. Ooh, scary. Small acts of kindness are frequent and universal. Study finds. That's nice. It's pretty cute. Study links struck stem cells to hair turning gray. Ah. Researchers create embryo-like structures from monkey embryonic stem cells. All right. <clears throat> Best treatment for excessive daytime sleepiness. Uh, that's a good one for me. I like to nap in the daytime. I, I suffer from this one. So personally, I'm going to benefit from this. So we're going to go ahead and get into it. Uh, May 9th, 2003, McMaster University researchers found that the drug sorbifil. Okay. They have a drug, most effective treatment for excessive daytime sleepiness. I'm not into it. Or people with obstructive sleep apnea. Interesting. Okay. I'm in. I'm listening now is a positive airway pressure. Uh, the standard for obstructive sleep apnea is a positive airway pressure mask, uh, uses compressed air to support lung airways during sleep. However, some people with OSA still experience EDS and may benefit from anti-fatigue meditation Medi medication. <laughs> All right. I'm not into this. Uh, it's not, I was hoping to be some kind of cool exercise or breathing technique, but no, uh, Science of attraction. Why do we fall for certain people? Okay, we'll get into this one last. This is pretty interesting. We're attracted to people who, someone was asking this question the other day. So we're attracted to people who like the same things as us, politics, music, books, but why? And could it mean we're judging those who aren't like us too harshly? <laughs> Scientists, uh, sometimes life most meaningful relationships grow from the briefest connections. Like you go to a party and meet someone wearing your favorite band's t-shirt or who laughs the same jokes as you or grabs an unpopular snack you alone or you thought love. Uh, one small shared interest sparks conversation. That's my favorite too. All blossoms into a lasting affection. 
This is called the similarity attraction effect. We generally like people who are like us. Now, findings from a Boston University researcher have uncovered one reason why. In a series of studies, Charles Chu, a BU Quest Storm School of Business Assistant Professor of Management and Organizations, tested the conditions that shape whether we feel attracted to or turned off by each other. We found one crucial factor was what psychologists call self-essentialist reasoning, where people imagine they have some deep inner core essence that shapes who they are. Chu discovered that when someone believes an essence drives their interest, likes, dislikes, they assume it's the same for others too. If they find someone with one matching interest, they reason the person will share their broader worldview. The findings were published in the American Psychological Applications Journal of Psychology and Social Psychology. If we had to come up with an image of our sense of self, I would suggest this nugget, an almost magical core inside that emanates out and causes what we can see and observe about people and ourselves. Uh, that was Chu, who published the paper in Brian S. Lowry of Stanford Graduate School of Business. He said, uh, we argue that believing people have an underlying essence allows us to assume or infer that when we see someone who shares a single characteristic, they must share the entire deeply rooted essence as well. Big mistake, guys. Don't fall for it. But Chu's research suggests this rush to embrace an indefinable fundamental similarity with someone because of one or two shared interests may be based on flawed thinking. And it could restrict who we find a connection with. Working alongside the pool of the similarity attraction effect is a countering push. We dislike those who we don't think are like us, often because of one small thing. They like that politician or band or book or TV. So we loathe. We are all so complex, but we only have full insight into our own thoughts and feelings. This is true speaking. Uh, and the minds of others are often a mystery to us. What this work suggests is that we often fill in the blanks of others' minds with our own sense of self that can sometimes lead us to some unwarranted assumptions. Trying to understand other people. Oh, this is so good for my haters. Y'all needed to hear this. To examine why we're attracted to some people and not others, choose set up four studies, each designed to tease out different aspects of how we make friends or foes. In the first study, participants were told about a fictional person, Jamie, who had either complimentary or contradictory attitudes for them. After asking participants in their views on one of five topics, abortion, capital punishment, gun ownership, animal testing, and physician-assisted suicide, Chu asked, how they felt about Jamie, who either agreed or disagreed with them on the target issue. They were also quizzed about the roots of their identity to measure their affinity with the self the self essentialist reasoning. Chu found the more participant uh, the Chu found the more a participant believed their view the world was shaped by an essential core, the more they felt connected to the Jamie who shared their views on one issue. In a second study, he looked at whether the effect persisted when the target topics were less substantive. Rather than digging into whether people agreed with Jamie on something as divisive as abortion, he asked participants to estimate the number of blue dots on a page, then categorized them. And the fictional Jamie as over underestimations with this slim connection of the findings held more the more someone believed in an essential core, the closer they felt to Jamie as a fellow over or underestimator. <clears throat> okay. I found that both with petty, meaningful dimensions of similarity, as well as with arbitrary, minimal similarities, people who are higher in their belief that they have an essential, they have an essence are more likely to be attracted to those similar 
others as opposed to dissimilar others, says True. Wow. Interesting. So in two comparison studies, Chu began disrupting this process of attraction, stripping out the influence of self-essentialist reasoning. In one experiment, he labeled attributes such as liking certain painting as either essential or non-essential. In another, he told, persist- he told participants that using their essence to judge someone else could lead to an inaccurate assessment of others. It breaks this essentialist reasoning process. It cuts off people's ability to assume that what they're seeing is reflective of a deeper similarity, says True. One way I did that was to remind people that this dimension of similarity is actually not connected or related to your essence at all. The other way is by telling people that using their essence as a way to understand other people is not very effective. Negotiating psychology and politics at work. Chu says there's a key tension in his findings that shape the application in the real world. One, on one hand, we're all searching for our community. It's fun to hang out with people who share our hobbies and interests, love the same music and books as us, don't disagree with us on politics. This type of thinking is really useful, uh, heuristic psychology psychological strategy. It allows people to see more of themselves in new people and strangers, but it also excludes people, sets up divisions and boundaries, sometimes on the flimsiest of grounds. When you hear a single factor opinion being expressed that you either agree or disagree with, it really warrants taking an additional breath and slowing down, he says, not necessarily taking that single piece of information and extrapolating on it, using this type of thinking to go to the very end that this person is fundamentally good and like me or fundamentally bad and not like me. So this is brilliant. Everyone needs to hear this. Chu, whose background mixes the study of organizational behavior and psychology, teaches classes on negotiation at Questrom and says his research has plenty of implications on the business world, particularly when it comes to making deals. I define negotiations as conversations and agreements and disagreements about how power and resources should be distributed between people. He says, what inferences do we make about the other people we're having in these, we're having these conversations with? How do we experience and think about agreement versus disagreement? How do we interpret when someone gets more and someone else gets less? There are, are all really essential questions to the process of negotiation. But in a time when political division has invaded just about every sphere of our lives, including workplaces, the applications of Choose Findings go way beyond corporate horse trading. Managing staff collaborating on projects and team bonding are all shaped by the judgments we make about each other. Self-essentialist reasoning may even influence society's distribution of resources, says Chu, who we consider worthy of support, who gets funds and who doesn't could be driven by this belief that people's outcomes are caused by something deep inside of them. That's why he advocates for pushing pause before judging someone who at first blush doesn't seem like you. There are ways for us to go through life and meet other people and form impressions of other people without constantly referencing ourselves. He says, if we're constantly going around trying to figure out who's like me, who's not like me, that's always the most it's not always the most productive way of trying to form impressions of other people. People are a lot more complex than we give them credit for. And that was a brilliant article and a very cool way to wrap up. I think that one, in case anyone needs it, because that was a good one. Um, certainly going to reference that again in the future for my haters. <laughs> hey guys, let's make this less about, uh, you and this actually try to understand me a little bit more. Um, I, I recognize a lot of self hate in all the haters out there. 
And uh, I noticed that their criticisms of me seem to resonate with their personalities more than they might be aware of. So I think that's a perfect place to wrap this up. That's been a beautiful 35 minute episode for me. And I hope everyone uh, found that useful, um, entertaining, um, educational. And uh, if you guys have any recommendations for anything you want me to look into in the future, don't hesitate to let me know.